Welcome to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio. If you're interested in what makes your favorite authors and collectors tick, then you'll love hearing what they have to say in our live interviews. Learn how they got started writing, the books and authors that inspired them, what they have in their personal collections, and much more. Meet today's hottest authors as they discuss their life and writing in revealing conversations with our book specialist, Roger Nichols. And find us at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com. Now sit back and enjoy a few minutes with Modern Sign Books. Here's Roger. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Our guest today is former Washington, D.C. lawyer, but we won't hold that against him because he has turned away from the dark side and become a New York Times best-selling novelist with more than 35 novels to his credit in the 30 years since Absolute Power was published in 1986. That debut was so powerful, a story became a major movie starring Clint Eastwood and directed by Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman. David Balducci's work is crisp, clear, and riveting to read. His novels have been translated into more than 45 languages, sold in more than 80 countries, over 100 million copies are in print worldwide. He's also published five novels for younger readers. He has six different series characters plus standalone novels, and he said that moving between them keeps him fresh. It's a strategy that works, and it works very well indeed in his latest, No Man's Land. Here we meet again John Puller, Jr., military CID investigator, his brilliant older brother, and his father, the retired three-star general who should have had a fourth star and a medal of honor, but instead has advanced dementia. This time, circumstances lead him to take up a 30-year-old cold trail, that of his mother who vanished when the Puller boys were just children. It's a fascinating journey, particularly when everyone John Puller consults tell him not to trust anyone. We're very pleased to welcome David Baldacci this morning. Hello. Uh, the opening of this, and I have to, I have to say that this is a, a non-standard opening because you're not starting with John Puller. You're starting with a different character uh, getting out of prison, and it's a, a very grabbing scene. Um, do you sometimes feel that you have to invert things to, to get the, the reader's attention? You know, with this, it was important, I think, for me to establish um, the character of Rogers pretty much off the bat because he was going to be a major character throughout the entire story. And I wanted to hit the ground running with him. And I thought that it would give the readers uh, an intriguing point of view from somebody they had never seen before, even though this is a series, a novel with John Puller. Um, but I really wanted to hit the ground running, see where this guy came from, and sort of leave them a little bit guessing, is he a good guy, is he a bad guy? I think you could read the first you know, couple of chapters and think, oh my God, this guy's horrific, he's a monster, he's going to be pretty pretty much evil throughout the book, and I can sort of predict how it's going to go. And it was important for me to sort of throw that out right away, uh, mm-hmm. to give the reader something to sort of have a, as a touchstone, um, but then allow the story to develop that maybe it's not going to turn out exactly how they thought it was going to. It, it does. There, there's some wonderful twists in it, which I will not spoil for our, our, our listeners. But the thing that, that is intriguing to me with a series character uh, is how each time you reveal a little bit more of the backstory, and this is a particularly compelling, like, in, in that what happened to his mother 30 years ago, he's been an investigator for a long time. He's not tackled this. And now all of a sudden, a rather dramatic development kind of forces him into look that direction. Yeah, it's been a long time coming for him. And I think what I wanted to do with Puller in this book particularly was sort of peel the onion layers away even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the other cases, you learn some about his family, obviously, about his brother mm-hmm. and his father, but not really that much about 
him personally. So this is sort of a way for the reader to understand maybe why he became an investigator in the first place to find the truth, because with his mother he had not had that for the last 30 years of his life. Um, so it sort of allows the reader to understand how John Puller became John Puller. Um, and I think there, there's guilt in this story for him as well, because he chastises himself several times in the book for never having attempted to break this case open before, even though he'd been an investigator for a long time. I think he was afraid to face it. And sometimes, you know, the past is a very difficult thing for people to confront, and a lot of us, for varying reasons, um, tend to bury it and just try to move forward and don't want to face it because it's too hard. There, there is a, a bit of a psychological thriller as you, aspect of this particular book as well. But again, it... It seems to come from a slightly darker place than some of the earlier uh, novels have. Yeah, I, I think so. And you know, in, in sort of the subject matter of this book kind of leads you that way, um, regardless of how you want to sort of put the story together. And I, I know a character like Paul Rogers and what happened to him. And I know people, some people read the book and go, oh, wow, they've got really, you know, it's out there. And, and my only comeback would, would be, they've already done all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yes. So it's not nearly as far-fetched as you think it is. Um, but it, I, I really wanted to get down and dirty with the human toil on both sides, both with Rogers and also with John Puller. I can only imagine the anguish, you know, a child growing up not knowing what happened to one of their parents, um, that being this, sort of this void, almost like this black hole in their lives um, that you are afraid to even get near. So psychologically, it was very dark because it took us to some of the, you know, the scariest places there is. One guy losing who he was, another guy not knowing what happened to someone who was so instrumental in his life, you know, growing up. Um, and then just gone. Um, so it, you know, invariably that the story that I picked to tell invariably led me down sort of a darker path. And, and I think it brings an additional richness uh, to uh, and complexity of the book, which adds another layer to it. Um, particularly, I was concerned after after the uh, the last book when he gets his brother out of prison that was justly accused. I thought, where is he going to go to top this one? And uh, congratulations, you have done so magnificently. Thank um, you. The, one of the things you're able to do is kind of define something by its absence in this particular case because you have everybody else's kind of recollections and descriptions uh, of his mother, Jackie. And, and that kind of, you, know, you don't actually have her viewpoint but you see everybody else's interpretation of her and what she has done and what she's like, and I find that fascinating. It is really um, people's recollections can be kind of all over the board, and it's always always you know sort of the effect that we have of someone you know will taint how we remember that person. Um, certainly, John Puller has certain memories of his mother, but then he found out that he didn't have nearly as many memories as he should have. He just sort of blanked some out for various reasons, as his brother pointed out to him. Um, he'd already had a very interesting relationship with his father, and with his father's current mental state right now, it's not someone he can really sit down and talk to about this. Um, but I think with, with Puller, he was, you know, gobsmacked by this on, on many levels. I think he just thought this was a question that would never be answered, and he just sort of put it behind him. And now that it was brought out in the open, he really had to overcome so much to actually be able to investigate this. But since Jackie was never, ever in the book, 
I really had to build her character and her background and have a reader get a sense of who she was, as you said, through the recollections of other people. And those recollections were, you know, sort of all over the place. Um, I think that most people thought she was a very wonderful person, uh, great with her sons, um, loved them very much, but then it made you wonder, so did she leave voluntarily? No. Was she, the problems with her marriage were too much? Did something happen to her? Um, was she as nice as people thought? That she was. You got sort of varying recollections from people, but I think it was more a study on how we remember things, mm-hmm. um, as, in addition to sort of building her character through recollections about how people remember things over the years. And I think that the older we grow, we tend to embellish our things so that we look far better than we actually did <laughs> at the time. It's just kind of a human nature to do that. And, and I think somebody in my profession where I'm a reporter and I record things electronically and take notes, and it's fascinating to see how the abstraction of the notes leaves out certain details and it amplifies others. So if you want an accurate record, you want to double-check back on that. So, yeah, it's, that makes it very, very believable. Yeah. When, when you set out to write to this particular one, was, was this the thing where you knew the end at the very beginning when you started writing? No, <clears throat> I didn't. In fact, as I was going along, several... Uh, possible endings occurred to me along the way. Um, and I kind of wrote them all out and ah. then reflected back and just uh, finally decided on the one that's actually in the book to being sort of the optimum one, the one that I think best reflected what I wanted to do with the story, how I wanted to end it. Um, endings can be, you know, hard. Um, and But I've never really wanted to know the ending of a book before I sit down to write it. Then I, it seems like I'm just typing to the end. You know, there's uh, no explanation. There's no surprise. There's no zig or zag. It's kind of like, okay, I know where it's going to go. And then it's almost like you have the A and you have the Z, and then you build all the letters in between to reflect that, yeah. those two points, the starting point and the ending point. Even sometimes if maybe you have a better idea as you're writing the book because you get to invested in the characters. When I sat down to write this book, I had no idea who Paul Rogers was. I didn't know what he was going to do. I didn't know all the peripheral characters who were going to influence the trajectory of the story. Um, so how can I come up with a Z before I even sit down and write the first page? So for me, it's very much a journey of getting there. Um, but after you've written 400 or so pages, things <laughs> tend to sort of gel and they do come together. <laughs> and then you realize, okay, I've, I've taken this long journey, you know, it's taken me, you know, almost a year to do this. I think I know these characters as, as well as I'm ever going to know them, and now I really do know how I, I want this to, to end. Uh, that will best reflect the story that I've built along those pages. I think it's fascinating to me to watch uh, how you treat different series characters, and whether I'm reading a King and Maxwell or a Will Roby or a John Puller, I find there's an emphasis slightly different on each one, and yet there's that same ability to pull the story along by the character and the circumstances. Uh, it's a wonderful gift. I, I Please keep writing for a long, long time. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, for me, it's, it's always sitting down you know, with each new book and kind of feeling like I'm writing my first novel again and again and again. I, I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no control <laughs> over everything, and I, I just sit down and see if I can do it again. But I think that also 
um, I'm never complacent because of that because I'm just terrified that I just can't do it again. And uh, I never want to get into, fall into sort of the formula routine of like, you know, how did I do it last time? It's kind of like that fear is a really great antidote to complacency. And I've never lost that. I always sit down with great terror when I'm writing each book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there, there are a couple of lines I want to mention particularly because uh, I find them intriguing. Uh, one, one of them is... Uh, that's the price of being sincere. You get ripped apart when they leave you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the price we all have to pay, you know, and the longer you live, uh, the more those long-term relationships are established and you've invested, you're in it, you know, and then people go away, you know, they pass away, they go out of your lives for whatever reason. And that's the price you pay uh, for caring about someone. Right. Um, and you can have wonderful moments, wonderful years together, um, and then they're no longer in your life. And it is a huge hole. Um, and the only way to get through that, I think, um, after you grieve and you're sad and all that, is just trying to remember that long chain of events that you had that allowed, that there was such a huge upside to it uh, that, you know, you could have spent decades with this person and they brought so much to your life. And then you have to keep that in perspective. And when they're when they're gone, it's it's a massive hole and it hurts terribly. But the only thing you can do is position all the great stuff against that, and that allows you to carry on with your life. Um, but it just it is it is very much a big part of life, and we all have to go through it. Yeah, I think one of the things that helps people right now is the people who put on the funerals that advocate for the video tributes. And one of the advantages of that is it forces you to sit down and look through all the old pictures. And when you take pictures, you usually take them on happy occasions. And you may have had somebody who was ill and not you know, feeling well or not you know, happy for a long time, and now you're looking back and seeing them happy. And uh, all of them together like that can be, can be very helpful and healing. Let's decide. It's very therapeutic. And yeah. you know, I, I'm all for, you know, at the end, uh, celebrating someone's life rather than mourning their death. Um, you know, that comes to all of us. Um, but so it, it, it just, it's paying the respect that person deserves for the life they've led, not just the end, as you said, where they could have been, you know, sick and, and all that. That's not who they were. Their life is who they were, and that's what should be celebrated. One of the things that, that you do is you celebrate your characters by giving them real moments and making them real people and not cardboard cutouts. And uh, one of the things that, a line that also leaped out at me uh, is that at one time he says, for the first time in his life, it seemed that perhaps the truth didn't matter. That's like a giant revelation for him. It really is, isn't it? And for me, you know, when I was a lawyer and now I'm, you know, I write fiction, even though I write fiction, the truth does matter to me. So you have to pick those moments in a book, and there can't be too many of them when people have a revelation like that. It's an epiphany that's so bone deep that it's almost like someone has cut you. Uh, with something sharp. Um, and it's not one you ever lightly walk away from or ever forget, you know, having thought, because it's just, it's, it's like it's revealing sort of a truth about you. So when someone says that, the truth may not, for the first time, may not matter. That's not just making an observation about something out there. That's making an observation about you and who you yeah. are. And for a guy like Puller, who's spent his whole adult life chasing that, uh, for him to make that sort of, you know, statement reveals a lot about him. My my biggest issue with a guy like Puller, 
and even a guy like Will Roby is there are these they almost seem like these superhuman machines that just keep going and going and going like yeah. the Energizer Bunny, you know. Uh-huh. Um, that's not enough to sustain a series. You've got to make them human. And uh-huh. one of the ways you make them human is you knock them on their ass and then and, and see what they do. You know? Yeah. Do they do they get back up but do they also cry? Do they also have self doubt? Do they also wonder what the hell they're going to do next because we all do that. Yes. So by having my these types of characters suffer through those same things, it's a fantastic way for me to humanize them because that's the only point of writing a series. You know, you, I can't do Justice League of America for ten books. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've got to, I've got to have, I can't have superheroes. I've got to have people. So it's interesting in, in, in that um, your Paul Rogers character has certain. Um, I would call it Jason Bourne aspects to it, to him uh, in in regards to that, and that's kind of fascinating in itself because it's not overdone. Right, that's right. I mean, he's still yeah, he certainly, you know, has a lot of things that we would consider extraordinary about him, um, but you see that the baggage this guy has totally oh. outweighs all yeah. of that, and he is he is damaged goods from the get go. And my biggest challenge with Rogers is to, was to not make him cartoonish or a caricature. I had to make you feel this guy's suffering. Um, and I did it in a, any number of ways, but he was also a challenge for me. I, needed to, I had to humanize this guy, and I had to humanize him fairly quickly. Otherwise, the readers are just not going to relate to somebody like him. Yeah. So after he left prison and I put him through a series of things right from the get-go um, yeah. that allowed you to see, oh, my God, this guy is... He's a, he look at what he can do, yes. but then I had to temper that by the fact that he had, he also was had a lot of self doubts. He was unsure and uncertain, and you could just see in his mind, you know, he was agonizing over all this stuff. And I had to do that right away because I just felt in my gut it was important for the readers to get both sides of this guy right from the beginning, not just one. Yeah, that, that, and that and it really really makes the reality sink in. Interestingly enough, that both he and Puller have. Uh, memory deficits in certain areas. Yes, they you know they run on parallel tracks throughout this. You know, you're you're an astute reader, obviously, and you saw that. I don't think every reader will, but for there's just so much to build behind these characters that um, and so much work put into them that may not play out in in some readers' mind. They may just see this as kind of an exciting action thriller. Lots of cool stuff happens, there's twists and turns, and you know, bodies flying everywhere, yeah. and that's fine. Um, but I did build a lot more into that, and, and these characters are very much parallels. Um, even though you would look at John Puller and go, oh my God, he's an outstanding, he's a hero, a soldier, served his country, and this other guy is, we don't know what this other guy is, but he's not that. But if you look at the backgrounds of the two and what they think along the way, they're par- there's train tracks running right next to each other. And that was a very important thing for me because I almost wanted to say, you know, these guys could have turned out the same. You yes. know, it's almost like there, but for the grace of God, go I. Yeah. Um, but what was done to Paul Rogers, you know, was not done to John Puller, and that's why these guys turned out so differently. So it can be one thing in your life, one thing that you hit or you hit with, um, and then your whole life has changed, and you can never go back. It's it's fascinating stuff. I I, I want to pivot a little bit now to, to some of the other things that you're involved with, because it seems to me like that was a nice lead-in to the uh, Wish You Well Foundation. Yes. We have been, we started it about 15 years ago, and 
it addresses really one thing and one thing only, and that's illiteracy. Um, and our mission is to eradicate it in this country. Um, and people say, oh, wait, I know it's important to read, and most people can read okay, and that's not the point. A lot of people can't read at all. A lot of people can't read at an acceptable level. But it taints all other aspects of your life, you know, socio and economically. Um, people who can't read are not going to be, you know, as well informed about things. They're going to be more intolerant of people. Um, it's going to change the way they look at life. It's going to allow them to be manipulated by other people far more easily. If you don't have your own opinions, rest assured, there are lots of people who will tell you what you're supposed to think about yes. that. So the, the Wish You Well Foundation, over the last 15 years, we've funded programs in over 40 states um, and, and literacy initiatives, worked with hundreds of different organizations, and have helped you know millions of people learn how to read at a better level and thereby have a better life. Um, if you can't read, you're never going to reach your potential. It's just not going to happen for you. And it's it's a downward spiral. If, if your parents can't read, then every study has shown that their children are going to read at below acceptable levels or not be able to read at all, and their life is going to be terrible in their children's lives as well. It's almost impossible to get out of that spiral. Um, so getting people to read you know, at, at higher levels uh, changes the world. It really does. It's, it's a... It's a it's a very cost-effective fix, let me tell you that, mm -hmm. because it costs far more to... I, here, I'll tell you two statistics that I want to get rid of. I never want people to cite ever again. One is there are people whose job is, and it's an important job, to project um, prison bed populations out 20 or 30 years. Because mm -hmm. prisons take a long time to build. You have to know how many yeah. beds you're going to need. And so they look at two statistics pretty much only, and they have a 97% accuracy rate. One is... Um, fourth grade reading test results, mm. and the other one is high school dropout rate. Uh -huh. And those two factors, fourth grade and high school, give them a 97% accuracy rate of how many prison beds you're going to need in the future. Wow. And that's why I say that's the t those two statistics I want to wipe from the face of the earth. Um, but that will show you in a, in a nutshell um, how important reading is, because if you don't hit those marks, um, then you know what's going to happen to those people's lives, and they're going to be a, a drain on society, not uh, a positive. And a lot of bad things emanate from that. Uh, so fixing that is one of the most cost-effective things we could ever do to have a better world. And it strikes me, too, that people who have learned to read later on are going to be pretty devoted to it, and that sometimes those of us who can read, I think the quote is, is, People who don't read good books have no advantage of those who can't. So we shouldn't get lazy and sloppy. We should do more of our research ourselves. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, if, you know, the A-literacy rate, people who can read but never do, is skyrocketing as well. You know, I, I shudder whenever I hear statistics about, you know, people in the United States who never even been to a bookstore, uh, uh -huh. never bought a book. It's just, it's astonishing. And it's not, um, it's not just, you know, people who are impoverished, you know, a lot of college graduates, the last book they read is the last book they read in college. Wow. And after that, it's not no, no interest to them at all. And I go around, you know, I do lots of book events, and, you know, thousands of readers come up, and they say, I want to read. But it's always, like, one or two people, you know, in the group that comes up who's gotten books uh, to be signed for a wife or a husband or whatever, and they'll say, yeah, you know, I, just, I've never, I don't read. I just don't read at all. I don't, I just, you know, I have other things that I do, and I just don't read. And uh, I'm sure it's very nice, but, you know, it's just not something I've ever been interested in. And, and 
way back, I would say, oh, that's okay, you know, you know life's busy and lots of other things to do. But now that I'm older and I don't really give a crap, <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just, I tell people, you know, when they tell me that, I said, you cannot believe, you cannot even imagine what you're missing out on. Yeah. And I leave it at that. Yeah, the books have, can transport you. Reading of any kind can transport you. Yeah. Uh, and you have a wisdom of all the people who went before you and those who are here now at, the, at your fingertips, if you can read. Um, it, it's a powerful thing. Uh, one of my favorite quotes right now is, of course you don't have enough shelves for your books. If you did, you wouldn't be worth knowing. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> which, which reminds well, whenever me. I, I, whenever go whenever I go and visit somebody um, at their home, I always matriculate over to the bookshelves because yeah. you know, what they have on their shelves tells you a lot about somebody. It really does, and it's just that's something I do in every place I go. I'm sure I don't do it obnoxiously. I just kind of you know sidle over and I kind of look through and um, and if they have some of my books on there, I love them even more. <laughs> well, if you come to our house, you'd find both of them. I think we have only two rooms: the kitchen and the bathroom. They do not have, not have bookshelves in it, plus boxes in the garage. So. Yeah, See, that's a happy home. <laughs> oh, it is. It absolutely is. Hey, um, any other thing you want to make sure we cover before we wrap up today? Well, you know, it's I've been writing a long time now, and um, it's uh, I, I can't believe you know they, my British publisher just um, reissued the 20th anniversary of Absolute Power, and Jeez. my uh, U.S. publisher threw a party for me in, in this May for you know the 20th year they've been publishing me, and but it's gone by so fast, but. Uh, you know, I approach the writing the same way that I did, you know, from day one. And it's just kind of like this childlike wonder of being able to tell a story. And I can't emphasize it enough to people, particularly aspiring writers who, yeah, you know, forget the business and it, forget trying to be a bestseller, forget trying to do all the other stuff outside of just sitting down and being a kid again and telling a, a good story that you're interested in. Um, yes. You know, don't necessarily write about things you know a lot about. Write about something you'd like to know a lot about, and that kind of drives you. Because if you're going to spend a year or two or three of your life working on one story, you better be interested and fascinated by it. But if you are, that interest and fascination comes through in the pages and lifts your books out of the sludge pile. It really does. Um, so I can't emphasize that enough. And, but I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky and privileged to be able to do what I do. Great, and we, we are lucky and privileged to have you doing that. And by the way, we should mention to those of you who are listening that you can get autographed copies of David Baldacci's many, many novels through VJ Books, where they are wonderful people. Thanks so much. Excellent. I really enjoyed it. You have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio with book specialist Roger Nichols. Be sure to check us out at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com. Thank you.